Welcome to this special edition of the Terry and Jesse Show. Bishop Athanasius Schneider is here to talk about his book, The Catholic Mass. Bishop, thank you for joining us this hour. You're welcome. Thank you. And, you know, for those who don't know who you are, you are one of the foremost defenders of our Catholic orthodoxy today. Uh, you're a pr uh, prolific author and serves as the auxiliary bishop of the Archdiocese of St. Mary and Astana, Kazakhstan. You're the chairman of the Liturgical Commission and Secretary General of the Conference of Catholic Bishops in Kazakhstan, halfway around the world from California. So, long ways away. Bishop, Eth Bishop Athanasius Snyder, I just said it before the show that I want to thank you for writing this book on the Catholic Mass. I really believe that out of hundreds, if not thousands of books I've read in 50 years of studying my faith, this is one of the top 10 books I've ever read because what you do in this book is you're, you're bringing back, uh, well, I call it Catholic amnesia. We've forgotten so much about the Mass, the last 50 years especially, and you're bringing back the Fathers of the Church, you're bringing back the Saints about the Mass, and it's so exciting to have you here to talk about the book. It's called The Catholic Mass. It's from Sophia Press. I just bought 37 copies so if people want to get a copy, they can call us at 877-526-2151. Uh, I've just sent one to Bishop, uh, Bishop Strickland, to many other people, because I believe this book could be instrumental in renewing the Catholic Church worldwide. Because once you understand what worship is and what the Mass is, everything else falls in place. Bishop Strickland, uh, Bishop Athanasius Snyder, my first question to you is your first part where the Mass is a prayer. And you quote the little flower. Uh, you, you say the Mass is a prayer. Well, we've heard that. Can you expand a little bit on what you mean the Mass is a prayer? Well, uh, the, the Mass is a liturgy. Mm -hmm. A liturgy is basically prayer. Mm -hmm. And we have to state this again because in the last decades, Mm -hmm. uh, in so many Catholic parishes and even among the faithful, uh, the Mass was, it was not so more aware that when we are, when we are at Mass, that, that it is a, firstly a prayer and not simply a meeting. And so it was the tendency in the last decades mm -hmm. to, to conceive, to understand uh, the Mass uh, primarily as an interhuman meeting or as simply as a brotherly meeting, as an assembly. And also the style, unfortunately, of the new Mass is oftentimes so made. Uh, this is very similar to a simple talk conference, to, to a lesson, to a teaching. So... And therefore, we have to return to stress that the Mass is firstly, primarily, really a prayer yes. and should be a prayer from the beginning to the end, of course, with the exception of the homily. But even the homily, the sermon, should be in a context, be pro, pro, uh, pronounced in, in a reverent when, manner. It is also a part of the liturgy. Uh, and therefore, the prayer is our first duty towards God. The first duty yes. to pray. 
Bishop Snyder, you also talk about the Catholic Mass. Uh, why, you know, why is Latin language so important regarding the unity? Now, I know the Second Vatican Council. I've read those documents, and it said that I'm supposed to know our parts of the Mass in Latin, and that the vernacular was given permission to be used, but it was an exception. So my question to you, why is it so important to have this universal language when it comes to the worship of God? First, that all uh, religions uh, in humankind, yes. they, they, they possess a sacred language. Mm -hmm. So we see, for example, even the Islam, in all countries, they pray in the mosque Arabic language, the classical Arabic language. Mm -hmm. and, um, and the Buddhists, they have their own lang sacred language. And even the Oriental rites in the Catholic or the Orthodox churches, they also kept in the East their sacred languages, uh, like the Syrian Christians, for example, the Aramaic language, the, the old Syria, Syriac language, uh, which is different from the spoken language of today, Arabic, in the, in the East or the, the Ethiopians, they kept the old, uh, the old liturgical language, the, the, the Slavic people, the Russians, and so they kept the old Slavonic language, which is not more spoken. And therefore, it is an expression that we have to express the mystery of God in a sacred language, not in the same as we speak on the street every day or the language of our newspapers. It should be elevated uh, uh, sacred language also to express, I repeat, that um, God is an ineffable, unspeakable mystery. Uh, God is not a mathematic formula which we simply uh, say in a rationalistic way, and the tendency to uh, to abolish uh, sacred languages, it came from Luther, Martin Luther, and Calvin. So they completely, uh, completely rejected any notion of sacred language, and this was against the common tradition of the entire church. And even in the, in the people of God, the Israel, in the time of Jesus and the apostles, they prayed uh, the solemn prayers, the Psalms in a, in a sacred language, Hebrew, a special language. Even it was not spoken uh, by the people on the street. It, the, the, the common spoken language was the Aramaic language. Jesus spoke Aramaic. And therefore, it was necessary that in the synagogues, the rabbis, they had to explain to the people uh, these uh, prayers or these passages of scripture, which, was, which were read in a sacred language even though the languages had similarity, but nonetheless, they had to be explained. And these explanations were called Targum, Targumim. And 
And so we see, and even when in the fourth century in Rome, uh, there was the change from the passing from the Greek language to the Latin in the Roman liturgy, it was not a, a passing to the simple vernacular language because the language, Latin, lang liturgical language in the first century was already a very high styled language which was not spoken on the streets of Rome. Uh, it was spoken a dialect of Latin on the streets of Rome. And so the church never took simply a street language, a common day of day language uh, to pray officially in the liturgy, never. And therefore we have to keep again the sacred language and our from Roman rite, the Western culture, all this is Latin for us. And the, the Second Vatican Council stressed very clearly mm -hmm. that the Latin language must be, I stress, must be, not could be, must be kept in the Roman rite. And the bishops are obliged to provide that the faithful know the main parts of the Mass, the Ordinarium in, in Latin. This is a command of the Ecumenical Council. We cannot, and it was simply in the last decades, last 50 years, simply ignored. And we have to at least to restore a part of the Holy Mass, the most central, the most mysterious part in Latin. And this is the Eucharistic prayer where Jesus comes down and from heaven and is present with his body and blood and with his uh, sacrifice on the cross upon our altars. This is unspeakable miracle, the miracles of miracle. Uh, and therefore we have to at least, to my opinion, in all churches of the world, of the Roman Rite, to that the, this part of the Mass this the Eucharistic prayer should be prayed in the sacred language Latin. Besides, as you already mentioned, is it, it will be also a powerful means of the unity of all Catholics all over the world. And this is also necessary. Bishop Snyder, I experienced that in 1981 at the Eucharistic Congress in Lourdes, France. There were all kinds of masses going on and they had a Latin mass and there were people from all over the world and we worshiped in Latin. It unified all the cultures, one sacred language. And boy, that really sent it home to me, what, 40 years ago when I experienced that. And I want to thank you for that. Uh, when we come back, I want to talk on page 29. You talk about St. Basil the Great explaining the spiritual sense of active kneeling and also the Desert Fathers. You won't want to miss this, folks. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a quick break. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. Bishop Athanasius Snyder is here to talk about a new book called The Catholic Mass. So far in the first segment, 
I'm telling everybody, pick up the book. You can go to Sophia Press or you can call us and I'll send you a copy. 877-526-2151. I always say this, Bishop Snyder, when I understand the Mass, I say this on the air, I'm too blessed to be stressed. I'm too anointed to be disappointed. And if hope was money, I'd be a billionaire. Why? Because when you understand what the Catholic Mass is, you're going to want to be there every day of your life. And through the grace of God, I'm 65 since I'm 14 years of age. I've been, through the grace of God, being able to go to daily Mass, adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. That's what keeps my focus, my my love for Jesus and the Eucharist, my love for the Mass. Now, Bishop Snyder, on page 29 I was moved. I, I had read this before, and it moved me then. I think it was in one of our Opus Angelorum newsletters. I think it was Father William Wagner who taught this to me. And it's, a, it's regarding St. Basil the Great and also the Desert Fathers about the importance of why is it important to genuflect and kneel before the Blessed Sacrament. Can you share a little bit of that with us? Yes, because it is evident when, you, when we know who is in the, in the Holy Host. Amen. I say not only what is the Holy Host, but who is the Holy Consecrated Little Host. Amen. There is present, substantially, really, mm-hmm. and uh, with all the, the truth, truly, the majesty, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the divine majesty, even though united with his body and blood, his body and blood is immolated and transfigured at the same time, but with the signs of the wounds in the host, or of course the, the transfigured wounds, but and present with all his immense redeeming love Mm. and with the splendor of his divinity. And so, but it is hidden, it is covered, it is veiled by the species of bread. It's only a veil. And, but we have to penetrate this veil with our faith, with the eyes of our faith, and with our love. And therefore, it is so obvious and uh, evident that you have to kneel down. When you, if you would see this, if the veil would be for one moment taken away, you will spontaneously, uh, forcibly kneel down. And uh, even it is written, the, in the Holy Scripture, the, even the demons, they tremble of fear Amen. before the majesty of God. And so all the creation, we read this in the Apocalypse of St. John, the Revelation book. Simply read this book. There is always written, all the angels, the saints, the, uh, they not only kneel down, they fall down upon their face. Mm-hmm. So they prostrate uh, before the Lamb who, who is in the midst of the heavenly Jerusalem, before the Lamb. So, but the Holy Host is the Lamb of God. 
really before our eyes. So we have not only even the, the, the kneeling down, it, it is the minimum which we do. Of course, we have to kneel down in our heart uh, and adore with our faith, but it is linked uh, inseparably. Uh, the, the, the interior act of faith with the exterior gesture. Well said. And you quoted Car uh, Cardinal Ratzinger. He said, a liturgy without an act of kneeling loses its Christian authenticity. And it, it quoted out that it may be well that kneeling is alien to our modern culture insofar as it's a culture, for this culture is turned away from faith and no longer knows the one before whom he's kneeling is the right, indeed, intrinsically necessary in this gesture. The man who learns to believe learns also to kneel, and a faith of liturgy no longer familiar with kneeling would be sick at the core. That's strong language. Yes, and this is very true and fitting yeah. and, and pointing to the real wound of our modern time. This is the refusal to kneel down before God. This is the sickness of our modern I time. I agree. Bishop Strickland, uh, Bishop Athanasius Snyder, I keep, <laughs> the question, you quote one of my favorite people, Dietrich von Hildebrand. Alice von Hildebrand was a dear friend of ours. And you quote Dietrich von Hildebrand, informally referred to by Pope Pius XII. Are you ready? As the 20th century doctor of the church. He, he says this, identified irreverence for lack of fear of God as the main spiritual lady of our modern man, saying that the irrever irreverent modern man, in spite of all his knowledge, is far more, he used a strong word, stupid, than the most primitive savage possessing reverence. You quote that in your book. I, what, what do you, I mean, I think he's right, right? I mean, this is making sense to me. Of course, uh... The Dietrich von Hildebrand, I quoted him several times yes. in my book yes. because he he gave us a beautiful book uh, with the title Liturgy and Personality. Oh yeah. And so and he was a deep he was not only a philosopher, a good philosopher, he was a deep believing Catholic man and uh, who loved so much our Lord Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. Amen. All his life and therefore this statement is so timely of Dietrich von Hildebrand that uh, as he said even today uh, the modern man who is the most high technology yes. but who, who refuses to kneel down before God he is uh, becomes a kind of savage a wild person and uh, the, even the, those people in in uh, situations where not they have not civilization or the technology, but they kneel down before God, they are greater. That's right. And it's uh, modern Western uh, technocrats and and so on. Yes. And therefore, we have to restore humanity. Will only be healed. Yes then begins again to kneel down before God, to revere God, to have the fear of God. Amen. Because the fear of God, as the Holy Scripture says, is the beginning of the wisdom. And bef uh, 
without the fear of God, there is no wisdom. There is maybe there is only science and occult science and technology, but no wisdom. And the wisdom only is coming from the fear of God, of the true God. And the wisdom is giving to our human life and our society this, this warmth and this real humanity, which we so much need in our time. Well said. Bishop Snyder, on page 38, you talk about uh, St. John Paul II's document written in 2004, and you say there's a particular need to cultivate a lively awareness of Christ's real presence. I love this line in your book. We need to have the presence of Jesus in the tabernacle must be a kind of magnetic pole attracting an ever greater number of souls enamored of him, ready to wait patiently to hear his voice. Bishop Snyder, I have talked to literally dozens, if not over a hundred people that found their vocation before the Blessed Sacrament on their knees. Yes, because uh, in the Blessed Sacrament, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ is the most nearest possible way. He is with us. So when you are in front of the Blessed Sacrament, Mm -hmm. You are the most closest to Jesus here on earth. Yep. Here is here. Um, because uh, there is also a beautiful expression in the Gospel of John when Jesus was visiting the house of Lazarus and Martha and Mary. And, and there was Jesus. And then uh, it was told to Mar- Mary. Magdalene, the words, the Lord is here and is calling you. So we have to, the Lord is in the Holy Host, in the Eucharist, and is calling you. And therefore, we have to increase the Eucharistic adoration, also for young people, uh, that they may discover their holy vocation. And we have to make retreats for young people, vocational retreats with Eucharistic adoration, with a solemn, beautiful Eucharistic adoration, with sacredness, not just with with, with these uh, two sentimental forms. We have to be more, more serious, more deep, to make this an atmosphere of silence, of reverence. And only in that atmosphere of silence of reverence, of uh, sublimity, uh, young people will, will be more able to hear the voice of the Lord who is calling them. Well said. Bishop um, Athanasius Snyder, well said. I've lived through these 50 years as a young person, and I've seen the liturgical abuses. I've seen horrible things at Mass And I didn't understand until I got older that I could make reparation for those sacrileges that are going on. And I just want to ask you, uh, the Fatima prayers that we pray for sacrileges that Our Lady taught the children, are those appropriate for us today? Of course, they're very much appropriate and timely. Mm -hmm. And they were given in a prophetical way Mm -hmm. for our time, I believe, because in in 1916, as when the angel yeah. gave his prayers to the children, uh, in those times, imagine in the Catholic Church, there were no 
cases of frequent sacrileges no. against the Eucharist or careless celebrations or communion in hand where the host is falling down and the, and the particles and the fragments are falling down. And there was no such phenomenon in 1916. But and nevertheless, the angel spoke these words and said these words, console your God, your God, who is so horribly outraged in this sacrament, 1916, so horribly. So these were for me the prophetic words of the angel in view of our times. Well said, Bishop, Bishop Athanasius Schneider. We're talking about his book, The Catholic Mass, Steps to Restoring the Centrality of God in the Liturgy. The way you worship is the way you believe. That's what the church teaches. And we're going to talk more with the bishop about his book and why everybody should get the book, because it'll inspire you to fall deeper in love with Holy Mass and the Holy Eucharist. Stay with us, family. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. Bishop Athanasius Schneider, author of the book, The Catholic Mass, Steps to Restoring the Centrality of God in the Liturgy. Can't think of a better topic to talk about than Holy Mass and what it is and what it isn't. This book is 300 pages long, so it's a good-sized book, but it'll help you understand that we are at that re- we are at Calvary every time we go to Mass. So many times people can't get that because what's happened is we've dumbed down the Mass where it's at the vernacular many times. Uh, they, uh, it becomes part of like entertainment rather than the worship of God. And Bishop Snyder covers all this, but one thing on page... 54 that caught my attention, Bishop Snyder, is you quote a very prominent theologian uh, saying that uh, creating that, that drastic innovations in liturgical rites and formulas was a characteristic of heretics. He writes, the first characteristic of anti-liturgical heresy is hatred of tradition as found in the formulas used in divine worship. Now, you quote the, some of the... Um, the Protestants, but, you know, I'm wondering if that is applying to our uh, modern day because I I still think people think that they do the liturgy. It's like we're going to have a team and we're going to put this in the liturgy and we're going to do that and make it entertaining, and they lost the whole focus of the liturgy. Am I on to something? Of course. <clears throat> this uh, quotation is from the famous Don Prosper Geroche, Mm-hmm. The, the abbot of the famous French mm-hmm. abbey, Benedictine Abbey of Solem in the 19th century. And he is considered as the father of the true liturgical movement in the, in, in the modern times. Mm-hmm. And he really stressed this point, which we have to, again, to remind that the hatred for tradition the rejection of uh, of rituals and of observing the rules was always the characteristic of heretics in all the history of the church. And therefore, it should be, uh, how do you say, the, an exam of conscience today to so many priests and even bishops 
to examine themselves if they are careless towards the observance of the liturgical rules, if they uh, are disrespectful, if they if they simply hate tradition, liturgical tradition, mm -hmm. then they have the spirit of heretics, yes. not of true Catholics. This we have to state this plainly. Yes. And because it is the fact proven in 2000 years in the church and our Lord, our lady, St. Joseph, they were the first examples, the Holy Family to observe very strictly and faithfully the laws of the liturgy of God, which God commanded in the Old Testament. And they observed all the rules. And Jesus Christ also, when he went to the temple, he always observed all these rules. And he said, if someone will abolish the, the, the most small, the least law which God gave, he will be called the, the least in the kingdom of God. And so the Lord said, I came to fulfill all these laws, not to abolish. And this spirit of the Lord, the apostles also uh, kept and gave uh, to the church. And therefore, since the apostolic times and the fathers of the church and continuously the church always was observant and careful with the laws in the public worship of God. It is a law given by God in the Old Testament, public revelation, and remained in the church and should remain. Not the, not the details of the, of the rites, because the rites can change by time, uh, but the spirit, the attitude of, of love for the liturgical laws, because it's an expression of the will of God, and not of my will, of the will of the church, and is an expression of objectivity, which protects myself from my egoism, uh, from my self-centeredness mm -hmm. uh, during, during the worship. So, therefore, it is a help. And uh, as I repeat, it is a revealed truth of God, the observance of liturgical norms and the love for liturgical as a principle. Yes. Bishop Schneider, um, Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI, in the reform of the liturgy, he, he talked about people not understanding the Mass when they start clapping as if it was entertainment. They missed the whole point of the Mass. And on page 59, you say this, and this is really important for people to understand. I don't think they get this in the Mass up here that we have. Uh, he said, but the chief element of divine worship must be interior. Can you expand on that? Yes, because uh, the, our union with God mm -hmm. is the meaning of prayer and liturgy, is the union of your soul, of your heart, of your mind with God. And this is interior. Mm -hmm. So we are not performing a magic rite. The, uh, in a magic rite, there is only the exterior. There is nothing interior. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we have to connect 
to link the interior to the exterior right is necessary because we are human corporal beings and have to worship according to our nature, also corporal. <laughs> but the, therefore, the church, uh, guided by the Holy Spirit, elaborated a beautiful, uh, sublime rites in the liturgy, gestures, in order to help us interiorly to lift up our heart, our mind easier, more easily to God. It was the exterior rites and gestures are a help for the to foster, to, uh, to promote our interior union with the Lord. And this is connected. And, um, and so we have to stress this. This is so important to the people, to the priest, to be interior united with the Lord during the Holy Mass and during the celebration. Well said. I'm just going to make one other quote and then ask a question. On page 64, I love this cardinal who said in 1512, this is so beautiful about our church, 500 years ago, he said, men must be changed by the sacred things and not sacred things by men. That's such a beautiful statement. Now, on page 65, I'm going to preface this by, I interviewed Abbot Boniface who was one of the fathers of the Second Vatican Council before, during, and after. He was the last living man at the Second Vatican Council. And I spent three hours interviewing him, and he said the same thing that is in this book about the Second Vatican Council. I joke, I said, will the real uh, Vatican II stand up? Because he said some of the things that have been implemented by Vatican II had nothing to do with the documents of Vatican II. And so there's a bishop of Macedonia on page 65, and you quote him during a debate on the liturgy of the Second Vatican Council, he made the following wise observations. He said, the liturgy of the Mass must not be treated in a manner of popular spectacle, which must be accommodated to the taste of the spectators. And I'll, I'll, I'll just let you say what he said, because I wanted to say a big amen to that cardinal. He was spot on. Share with what the cardinal had to say. Bishop Snyder, please. Exactly. This is so fitting. Yeah. His expression is because uh, what we are doing in the Holy Mass is, uh, as we started our conversation today, mm -hmm. it's prayer. It is really prayer. It is God to, who is the most important, to whom we direct all our intentions, all our mind, all our love, all our exterior gestures to him. And therefore, it is not to please uh, the people to make a performance. And uh, therefore, we have, this is uh, the sickness of the modern styled masses in so many communities that they are addressing first the, the assembly, the spectators. And so we have to be centered upon the Lord and do all, even the least gesture in the Mass, it is for the Lord. It is for Him. All is for Him. And then we will be cured of our anthropocentric attitude and so superficial performance style. And therefore, 
we have to explain also the beauty of the gestures of the mass. We have in the fathers of the church and good theologians, so many beautiful explanations of the meaning of uh, several gestures and prayers of the Holy Mass. And so we have to be centrated to God. So when we are entering the liturgy, the, the, the time has to stop the world and we are really taking at serious God. Take at serious God and his presence in this liturgy which we are celebrating. Bishop Snyder, I have to, it's a teaser for everybody when we have the break, but you, at the end of your book, there's a story about a little boy, you call it, it's, our Lord had given examples of little Eucharistic saints. Among them was Manuel Fordera. Could you, at the end, when we come back, tell that story? I think it's going to make everybody cry, because that story touched my soul. There's so much in this book, folks, that you want to get. Again, go to Sophia Press. To get the book, or if you want to come to Virgin Most Powerful, I bought a boatload of them, and I'm happy to get you one by calling 877-526-2151 or go to vmpr.org and get the book called The Catholic Mass by Bishop Athanasius Snyder. When we come back, put your seatbelt on. This story about a little boy, his love for the Eucharist, will touch you for the rest of your life. You'll never forget this story. Stay with us, family. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. Welcome back. Bishop Schneider is joining us to talk about his Catholic Mass book, uh, Steps to Restoring the Centrality of God in the Liturgy. At least the Church has always said the way you worship is the way you believe. Important book to get from Sophia Press or call us at Virgin Most Powerful and we'll get you a copy. All right, get your tissues out, because this is a very powerful story, one of the most powerful stories of a little boy who teaches us about the real presence of Christ and gives us good advice for love for Jesus in the Holy Eucharist. It's on page 289 of his book. Bishop Snyder, please tell us the story. Well, um, you can read this in the book. Powerful. Uh, this, this moving story of this little Italian boy. Yeah who was so much in love with Jesus of the Eucharist. Amen. Even in his, in his sickness, uh, he was, uh, had a cancer, a very serious sickness, and then he died. But in his, in midst of his pains, physical pains, he forgot in some way he's a boy. I mean, uh, in this age of uh, 10 and 11, he, he for or nine he was he forgot it, I would say his physical pains and was so much concentrated to the immense love of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist and his only desire was continuously directed to receive our Lord in the Holy Eucharist mm -hmm. and uh, in spite of his uh, of his condition of his sufferings. Uh, and this should move us uh, when the, the adult persons or the healthy uh, to, to increase our love, our desire to the Holy Eucharist, to prepare ourselves. And we can read how 
how carefully he prepared himself to receive our Lord in the Eucharist with so much love and attention. Uh, he prepared himself, his soul, his heart. And a little child should give us all in our day a renewed love and respect uh, for the Holy Eucharist and really to make the Eucharistic Lord the center of our life. This was this for this little boy, Italian boy, he made the Eucharist the center of his short life. And I think he will be a powerful intercessor for us in heaven to implore us these graces, the new Eucharistic graces for us. Well said. This story just will make you cry when you read how how he had such love for Jesus and also gave us much advice as adults about our love for Christ in the Eucharist. On uh, <clears throat> page uh, 66, Bishop Snyder, you were quoting Professor Joseph Ratzinger in 1976. He pointed out the rapture between the new rite and the entire earlier liturgical tradition of the Church. He drew attention to the discrepancy between the new rite and the words of intention of the Council Fathers. Can you uh, expand on that, please? Yes, this is very important. It is. Because in our day today, we are accustomed uh, to these words of the clergy and of the bishops and even of the Vatican, that the Novus Ordo, mm -hmm. uh, established by Paul VI in 1970, is, uh, as it were, the will of Vatican II and corresponds to the will of the Council Fathers. But this is not true. We have to say, no, this is not true because there is nothing in the Council texts to, uh, to change, to, to make new Jewish Protestant offertory prayers. There are Jewish Protestant prayers mm -hmm. of a meal and not of a sacrifice. Nothing is of this in the text of Vatican II. Nothing to do with new Eucharistic prayers, nothing. There is nothing to celebrate uh, towards the people, nothing. There is nothing of communion in hand and so on. So, and even the true Vatican II Mass is the Mass of 65, please. We have to remind this. Amen. This was in January 65, or in April, uh, the Pope published a new Ordo Missi, a new order of Mass, which he stated is the implementation of the text of the Vatican II liturgical um, document, decree. And then we have a, a text of the Secretariat of State in 66 to the Abbot of Beuron, in Germany, where he states, this order of mass is the implementation of the liturgical uh, decree of Vatican II. So, and this order of mass, the council fathers themselves celebrated when they returned to the last session in September 65. So they already celebrated this, their own, uh, so-called uh, Reformed Mass, and they were happy with this Mass, the Council Fathers. Why? Because this 
65 Vatican II Mass is completely the same order of Mass, the traditional, only with small um, changes, which were not revolutionary because the two uh, changes were in the in the 65 Vatican II Mass that in the at the beginning was dropped the Psalm 42, so left away. But this was also common in all the requiem masses before the council. The Psalm 42 was not prayed, for example, and also in the in the last period of the Lent also the masses were celebrated without the Psalm 42. So it was not a completely new revolutionary change. And the other that the last gospel was dropped. And even before the council in some uh, occasions, celebrations when after the mass was another liturgical celebration, it could be, be left out. So it was not a complete, nothing revolutionary. The only, uh, true, true, uh, new uh, no novelty, or what is what was new in the sixty-five Vatican II Mass was that the first part of the Mass could be celebrated in the vernacular language completely. So this was the 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 most evident change. But even in in the sixty-five Vatican II Mass, uh, from the preface to uh, to the Paternoster, it should be in Latin. It was prescribed, it was in Latin, and in the canon of the Mass was in silence, even in 65. So we had almost, and even Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre, the founder of the Society of Pius X, mm -hmm. he adopted and accepted yes. these 65 Vatican II Mass, and he was agreeing and content and the first five years of this Society of Pius X in Econ, in the seminary, they celebrated the 65 Vatican II Mass. Wow. It is a fact. And only in, in 75, they changed to the 62 form. Uh, and therefore we have to stress this, that the, the current Novus Order of 19, of Paul VI, 1970, is not the Vatican II Mass. It is only, uh, it is wrong. And another, another fact, in 67, 67, two years after the Council, it was the first Synod of Bishops meeting in Rome. And there, Bugnini, uh, who was the architect of the Novus Order, which we have, Unfortunately, he presented to the Synod Fathers in 67. So the same uh, order missive, which we now have as a draft only for them. It was not yet introduced, you know, in 67. It was introduced in 70. Uh, and the majority of the Synod Fathers in 67 rejected this form of mass, which we now have. Yep, that's a fact. Please, the majority of the Synod Fathers in 67, who all, almost all uh, were still participating in the council two years before, they rejected this form of, of Bugnini. And nevertheless, 
in 67, the, the, the church, the, the Synod Fathers rejected this. Nevertheless, Paul VI introduced this in 1970 and declared this as Vatican II Mass. This is simply not correct of Paul VI because he, he simply ignored the, the meaning of the fathers in Synod Fathers of 67. He ignored the 65 Mass as it was already the Vatican II Mass and yielded to the revolutionary order of Mass of Bugnini. And this is a fact we have to come back at least again to the 65 Mass. Abbot Boniface Lucchi said exactly the same thing you just said. He was one of the fathers. He worked with Bugnini and at first was a good working relationship, but uh, at the end he was charitable, but he said no. Um, there was an agenda there, and it wasn't what Christ wanted. He said that himself. Now, last thing, if we have a minute to talk about ad orientum. The council fathers in Vatican II said the church, the priest turns around and says, you know, the Lord be with you in Latin or English, if you know, the vernacular, if you wanted it. But the point of it was, it was indicating that the priest wasn't facing you. And I just want to say Cardinal Seurat, who endorses your book, wanted to change that years ago for Lent, maybe four or five years ago. But unfortunately, he couldn't do it. I think, and I want to hear your take in your book, you point out that it really does help us focus on Christ rather than on the priest when we are not, when the priest isn't facing the people. I have one minute. Oh, I'm sorry. Bishop, what are your thoughts on that? Yes, we have to turn to the Lord. Amen. To the Lord. I want everybody to get his book, The Catholic Mass. I'm hoping this is just going to be uh, number the first interview because I need a part two to get through other parts of the Mass. This is actually teaching us the beauty of the source and summit of the Christian life, the Eucharist, the Mass. Get the book from Sophia Press, or you can call 877-526-2151. Bishop Snyder, I have to thank you from the bottom of my heart that somebody put together a book on the Mass that takes you right through the worship of God and raises it to a supernatural level that we have missed for the last 50 years. This is a book that everyone needs to read and implement. And I hope and pray you can join me again for part two of the book, The Catholic Mass by Sophia Press. And I want to thank you, all of our listeners, and getting this book so that you can have a deeper love for Jesus in the Mass and in the Holy Eucharist. May God richly bless you and your family.